Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the third podcast for Smoke and Mirror Movie. Com. And of course, our documentary, Smoke and Mirror, How Barbecue Defines America, has been our guide for this exploration across meat, barbecue, and the politics and society of this wonderful American tradition. For those that don't know this, we started off to do a documentary on competitive barbecue. The first U.S. Open of barbecue, if you would, was going to be held in New Orleans. And we here at the States Items Studios decided that we would cover this. It was this comp- competitive barbecue contest. But what it led us to do is this whole competition on the nature of competitive barbecue around the country and the issues behind it. The, where did the meat come from? How was it raised? And this led to a massive controversy of where we are with meat in America. It became very timely as we produced this documentary that suddenly the coronavirus came upon all of us and meat shortages and the idea that meat wouldn't be available for us in our stores started to get real. And the one thing people seem not to realize, and it was kind of a surprise to us, was that you know meat has to be grown on a farm. It's just like anything else. Meat does not come from your local grocery store. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Christopher Tidmore, and we thought we'd explore where the pork actually flows from with someone who meets none of the stereotypical (laughs) viewpoints of what a hog farmer is supposed to be. She is not only lovely, but highly educated, highly articulate. And Marlo Ivey, calling from North Carolina into the Smoke and Mirror podcast. Welcome to the program. And you're the living embodiment that pork does not come from your local grocery store. You're a fourth generation uh, hog farmer. Yes, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That was uh, quite an introduction. <laughs> I, hope I, I hope I can live up to those standards. <laughs> so talk about this. I mean, it, 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 it should be logical. I mean, you, you, people will say, want meat, we want meat. But at the same time, we don't want farms, we don't want farms. It's the, the politics of urban and rural about this are all over the place. But is it just that people don't kind of sometimes recognize that, hey, um, A leads to B, you, you can't have bacon in the grocery stores unless you have somewhere to raise the pigs from which it hails? I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, the biggest problem now with the average consumer is the disconnect they have with the farmer and where their food comes from. I mean, the average consumer going in the grocery store is, I mean, five or six generations removed from the farm. So they just have no clue, you know, what we're actually doing on the farm. You know, they just don't understand what it takes to get meat on their tables. And I think, you know, quite honestly, they don't want to sit down and take the time to learn about what we're doing out here on these farms. Well, and let me ask you this, um, because there is, there's been a series of lawsuits. We could talk about that uh, later on, but effectively, one of the things that I've found is that there's an agenda. It seems like some people, even though they will tell the world, they're worried about environmental impact. um, And that could be an issue. They're actually, they have an agenda that is, they want to shut down the farmers. Do they want us all to go on a vegan diet or is it some other um, motivation like money? Um, well, my personal opinion is money. That's the, everything that's based on those North Carolina lawsuits is based you know, upon. They don't, when they file these lawsuits, they didn't ask us to fix, you know, they're not asking these farmers who are part of these lawsuits to fix what's on their farms. They simply want a payout. So in my eyes, you know, that kind of speaks for itself. And let's, because we're kind of jumping ahead when it goes, but it's, it's a worthwhile thought. Uh, Marlo Ivey is joining us here in the podcast. And um, Marlo, 
it's one of the things that intrigued me looking at the pig farms and what you're what you're doing is people get the idea that this is a field and slop and you know pigs no and quite in contrary i've seen uh, high chemical plants that aren't as indu- as 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 careful from the standpoint of environmental impact and various elements as you are on your farm it's a highly scientifically managed process and can you talk about what a modern hog farm looks like sure um you know my family when we started raising hogs we've been raising hogs for about 40 years we actually started with hogs on the ground um and then for the benefit of our farm because every farm is different we moved them indoors to barns um that allowed us to have a better environment for the pigs we were able to monitor their food and nutrition we were able to monitor the temperatures um more you know more carefully I and mean, i'm in north carolina so in the summertime it gets really really hot here so you know and and and, and pigs can get sunburned so the these climate wait, control, wait let, me get, let me hear that correctly we don't think about that but pigs have skin pigs can get sunburned yes <laughs> They do. They get sunburned. And, and, you know, pigs don't sweat. So that's when, that's why they wallow in the mud. So in my, you know, in my barns, since they're climate controlled and, and at a certain temperature, we actually have misters that mist on, on my pigs um, if, if it hits a certain temperature to cool them down. But this allows them to, number one, not get parasites because they're very susceptible to parasites um, outdoors, but also to help them keep them safe from predators and also to keep them from getting sunburned. And that's just three things um, that, that really helps with, with raising animals indoors. It's, it's a more animal welfare-friendly process, in my opinion. And you've got pigs indoors monitoring their environment, almost practicing social distance. It almost seems like these pigs are healthier than most of us in society. <laughs> yes. Uh, farmers have been social distancing since we started farming, so this isn't a new thing for us. We've been practicing um, biosecurity since as long as I can remember. So um, this is this is this is not new for us in food production, and that's a testimony too to the technology that the farmers have these days. And you know, we're always striving to do better. That's you know, that's all about sustainability. On my farm, I want to be better today than I was yesterday. Marlo Ivy, let, let's talk about the environmental impacts on this. And this is, and if, if you'll forgive me for referring to something I alluded to earlier, you're not this mental image. People go in and they say, we're going to fight the hog farmers. And they have an idea of someone who's old and grizzled and uneducated. And then they come across you, who is <laughs> a millennial, highly educated, um, not only in the family business, but it, it, basically with a scientific education, who is openly worried about her carbon footprint on her farm it, it, it do you do you kind of shock people when they kind of meet you because i know you're a spokesperson for a lot of your fellow hog farmers uh <laughs> i i guess so i mean and i think that's you know i think you know unfortunately when kids are growing up they see you know old mcdonald had a farm well we're not really a old mcdonald I, i'm not old mcdonald you know i'm i'm marlo ivy i'm out here just like any other consumer i'm a mother um, I'm a wife, you know, I care about when I go in the grocery store, I care about the same things that the average consumer cares about. So I put those same morals and the same, you know, equal understanding of what I want for my family, just like any other consumer would. So, I, you know, I feel like we're on the same page there. And, and caring for the environment is definitely one of them. And I want to talk about um, your carbon footprint, but you're raising something about going in the grocery store. We're really facing... A danger right now in our society because thanks to the coronavirus and thanks to what's going on 
we're about to face a meat shortage. And I'm curious about, is this getting people waking up to how, the, how critical the supply chain is and how easily it can be disrupted? I hope so. Um, for the sake of the future of the farmer and the future of food production, you know, I think people don't understand. It's like everybody freaking out about the milk, you know, farmers, you know, dumping milk. And why can't I just go and buy milk straight from the farmer? Well, in the state of North Carolina, it's illegal to sell raw milk. People don't understand the process it takes to get that from the actual cow to that table. So it's just like, you know, for, for my animals, for my pigs, I just can't, you know, they have to go to a processor and getting it there and the rules and regulations and the certifications and the process that has to go to, I mean, we aren't, you know, we aren't harvesting these animals in garages. I mean, we're harvesting them in a plant that's USDA inspected and, and highly regulated. And I'm proud of that. And I'm proud when I walk, in, walk into the grocery store that I know when I'm picking up a piece of meat that it's been humanely raised, it's safe, and it's been processed in a plant that's been, you know, has high expectations on and being sanitary. In fact, you've pointed out something. You don't use hormones when you raise no. pigs. No. <laughs> you know, that is like my biggest, when I tell, you know, my average, you know, non-ag, I call them non-ag eaters, mm. um, that there are no hormones in, po- in pork. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, you know, por- hormones in pork have been illegal since 1950. Like, I can't even go buy hormones if I wanted to, or steroids or or anything like that. And it literally, that simple fact, you know, boggles their mind because they just don't know because of, of fear marketing and these labels that marketing has put on our, on our food system. And one of the things that I get is because one of the arguments that's used um, of global warming is that farming for animals creates uh, uh, greenhouse gases and all this. It's interesting that if and I've looked at this, um, and I'm, I, I'm sounding like an advocate, but I don't mean to. I'm just, I actually have looked that if the rest of the economy follow the carbon uh, reductions that are going on in American um, animal farming, we would have doubled the ability of the Kyoto Accords to be reached. In other words, we would have gotten twice as much carbon reduction as it does. Can you mention that? Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. You know, I mean, what a huge testimony to sustainability. I mean, what you just said. And the average, you know, pig farmers over the past 50 years have reduced their carbon footprint by 40%. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that if that's not a testimony to what we're doing out here, I don't know what is. And this coronavirus has been a huge testimony to, you know, you know animal agriculture as well. I know I've, I've read some studies, and I don't know how true this is because it's the beginning of research, that some areas have, have seen some reduction and, you know, greenhouse gases, but there's still just as many animal agriculture, you know, there's just as many pigs in North Carolina or, or just as many dairy cows in New York, but yet they're seeing, you know, because people aren't driving, um, they're, they're seeing, you know, less greenhouse emissions. So I think that's a huge testimony to the fact that there's still just as many cows farting or, or <laughs> you know, they always want to use that argument, but, you know, it's, it's not agriculture. And this is one of the things that is the essence of the debate that's going on in North Carolina in the legal case. Can you have farms near communities? And there's something I've been curious about. And I know, and look, before somebody gets me, I know you're a biased source on this, having said that, but there's something I've been trying to figure out because I've... I've interviewed, just to be fair, uh, reporters who have covered this. I've interviewed the advocates 
who are putting through on the cases. Um, and I've and I've driven around and I've driven near park farms and like you said, your farm and others, the pigs are indoors. The disposal process is covered a lot of times. I'm supposed to be smelling a smell that's overwhelming communities. I'm from Louisiana. We're, we're, people don't think about us, but we're a major um, both hog and cattle area. Uh, they, don't, they don't think about that, but we do, we are. And You're also large in sweet potatoes. And just we, you are number two in sweet potatoes. Yeah. Just throwing that out there. It is. Y'all are a big ag state. We are a big ag state, and um, and I and I will say to people, and I'll, I'll drive by here and there, modern farms, and and I don't smell what everybody seems to be talking about. So let me ask you about that. Um, so your pigs are in stores, which kind of leads one to say they're not going to be smelling outdoors or indoors. And the disposal process, how does that waste work? So you're not only controlling environmentally, but you're controlling it atmospherically. Um, yeah, absolutely. So there's modern technologies that we use in place to regulate all of that. When it comes to our, the way I manage my hog system is through a lagoon system. So it's actually, actually um, a recycle system. So the hogs, you know, secrete through the slats in the barns and it's pushed out and it's broken down into basically organic fertilizer and we apply it on the crops in our fields. And what people don't understand about that either is that, you know, we're not applying our nutrient every single day. I think I tracked my pumping records last year and I pumped, um, I think, 18 days out of the whole year. And by days, I mean, you can only pump four hours at a time. So it's a very, it's a very regulated system. It's a very, you know, we're inspected by the state. It's not something we just do willy nilly. You know, we have to, I have to ask you this because one of the things I was kind of surprised by, wasn't your design for this designed by the university of North Carolina? Absolutely. It was, it was um, designed by NC state and it's actually been, you know, through the test of time. I mean, the, this system and the way that we manage our manure um, is in my, in, in my opinion, the most environmental sustainable at this point. And I, I will say that we, we come through it. It was, I was watching, I, I was actually on a cattle farm um, on Sunday and driving through it and having seen your descriptions of how you manage it and being in a field full of cows, um, it was, I was thinking, I'd much rather be, you know, next to the pig farm than this cattle farm. And to be honest with you, the cattle farm wasn't smelly. Um, I, I just, I'm curious though, then it gets into the communities around, how long have there been uh, hog farms in and around your area of North Carolina, near communities in and around them? I mean, how long has, it's, your family's been in this business for four generations, but this area of hog farming, how old is it in the state? On a, on a um, massive scale. I mean, if we're talking about hogs on the ground, I mean, and how it's involved. Well, that, that would be colonial period, yeah, basically. Right, I mean, but, but if I mean, you're talking about in the, in, in, in the, the modern system. In the modern evolved, system, yeah. The modern system um, came about in the 80s. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been here. And, and I, you know, and, and I know that we've talked about, um, and it's just like you just said, you went out there and it was supposed to be this overwhelming smell and, and everything like that, and it was nothing like that. And you know, that's one issue I've had with these these hog hog nuisance lawsuits is the jury wasn't allowed to come see a farm. How can you honestly make a decision about odor when you can't even go out there and and, and smell it yourself? I mean, that that smell test just doesn't pass in my book. And I, what was interesting is when I started working on this, I've 
just my background, I'm editor of an African-American newspaper, and I've done a lot of stories on environmental racism. And because we have a lot of chemical plants up and down Louisiana, and it's, it's the reason why we call it Cancer Alley, and these subtle ways. And so my first question was to, to a lot of the people, of, cor- of course, you're talking about environmental impact. And even the lawyers were saying, no, we're not actually, we don't think there's an environmental impact. It's about smell. And I said, okay, how do you quantify smell? And he said, well, it just smells bad. It's overwhelming. Okay. So I tried to figure out a scientific way to, to analyze this. I started asking the question. And the, as a reporter, as a journalist, the thing that occurred to me was no one in any of these cases, and I've read the case laws, seemed to put forward and said, this is the meter of smell. If you could do it. This is some kind of olfactory sense. It just simply is people would get there and said, I didn't like the smell, so therefore it should go away. And yet couldn't really describe in most cases what that smell was. And I'm curious, why do you think this all suddenly leaped out, uh, these class action lawsuits, where you are? Because I've talked to several people in the communities near farms and they were like, "This we've always lived next to farms. It wasn't a big deal to them. These weren't new communities for the most part. Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, this is agriculture. So, I mean, <laughs> agriculture has smells. That that's just that's just part of of being a farmer and being especially in animal agriculture, a farm's going to smell occasionally. Um and and I, but I think when it, if you're tying it back to the lawsuits, the whole premise of it is is something that they could use to push their agenda. It was it was it was something they could sell to the jury to be fearful of to push their agenda. Now, you've talked about the the monetary agenda of some attorneys, that this was a big payout because you're independent uh, hog producers, but you work with uh, some of the large um, suppliers and slaughter groups. Sure. But there's another, is there another agenda outside of money? And what I'm saying is, is there, is this not about the environment and the, the living of communities, but is this something like an attack on the entire meat industry? Absolutely. This is this is an, a complete agenda to basically end animal agriculture. Yes. To these people, I'm just curious, and if because if they're thoughtful vegans that we should not eat meat as a society, I can understand it and even kind of respect the intellectual side of it as much as I might not personally agree with it. But do they come out and say that that that, that this is their objective in doing all of these lawsuits? Um. Well, I mean, I've had to have some run-ins and, and first of all i don't i don't care if you're vegan vegetarian meat eater non you know purple pink blue or orange you know if you don't want to eat meat that's okay that's fine you don't have to eat meat let me just first say that and i have some some friends that are vegan so um you know i just wanted to put that out there but sometimes the extremist and we have extremists on on most any area if you want to get into it the things that they say and their agendas because i've been personally attacked by them I mean, the things that they say about my family and myself, it's enough to, to scare you, to be completely honest, because they're, they're so worried about pushing their agenda, and all they want is to put us out of business. And that's a scary place to be as a mother, as a, as a woman in ag, as a modern farmer, when, when you're just trying to produce food for people to eat and do it to the best of your ability and have these personal attacks on you. I mean, it, it's, I remember my dad told me one time, you got to have thick skin if you're going to be um, a pig farmer. And, and he's right. I, I have to ask this. I don't, I don't want to, you don't have to go into uncomfortable details, but 
the, a lot of our audience, I'm sure, is shaking their ha- heads. Wait, wait, what? What? Personal threats? Pig farmer? Because it, it seems so out of the normal experience. But your family's actually been physically threatened, hasn't it? Yes, my children have been threatened. I have been threatened. My farm has been threatened. Um, so it's it's a you know it's a um, I, it's, it's sad to say that I'm used to it. I don't think anybody should ever be used to their lives being threatened or saying they're going to come hurt my children. But honestly, you, you, you kind of have to build up a tolerance for it and just know that you're speaking to your truth and, and that you're doing um, what you know is right for your animals and for your family. Because at the end of the day, I get up every single day and what I care about is making sure that people have something to eat. And let me ask you this, because one objective of the lawsuits, some people will say, is to put hog farmers out of business and it comes through. I don't know if that's what many do, but let's just say, do you think our food supply would be, American agriculture, particularly American animal husbandry, is some of the most efficient in the world. We're actually able to compete in the international, most of our trade, what we what avoids our trade surplus is agricultural exports and particularly meats. But do you think if we actually chase a lot of our domestic meat and hog industry out of here overseas, our food supply is going to be as healthy? Um, Number one, no. And I think that we would be at a national security risk if that happened. Do you think that's if some of the critics of this succeed, that's where we're going as a society? Yes, and I promise you that I want to eat American pork. Um, but if they keep on putting us out of business by frivolous lawsuits, that's what's going to happen. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. At the end of the day, I know that that's their agenda, um, and and really, they're putting our nation's food supply at risk. And I'm proud to be an American farmer. I'm proud to buy American products. Um, so, and I, but I also understand how important trade is too in agriculture. We don't raise bananas here. Um, so, I mean, it, it's a balance and we, and we need to support each other and everybody needs to sort support the American farmer, especially right now. Marlo Ivy, I'm, I'm curious, you, you've seen the, the, the hog industry from all angles. So not only are you a fourth generation farmer, but you, you didn't do this your whole life. You actually sold pork up and down the East coast. And I'm curious, what were the oddest things you heard when you were you were dealing with suppliers and the general public as a representative of your industry? Um, I think my biggest problem I always have is um, pointing fingers at one another. You know, like mine is better than yours because I do this, or mm-hmm. you know, pick. I mean, people picking winners and losers, especially in the ag community. When you know, I respect if people. You know, I I choose to raise my hogs indoors. Um, that works best for my farm. You know, other people might choose to, to raise their hogs outside. That That's fine, too. It's all about personal preferences, preferences. Ugh, sorry, and food <laughs> choices. And I, people think people need to do their research um, and make their, you know, just best educated decisions for their family. I don't think any way to raise a hog, if, you, if, if animal welfare is the most important thing to you, we're all doing that. Just do your research and figure out what's best for your family. And speaking of family, this is... As much as it's a business to you, this is a legacy that you'd like to pass on to your daughters. Sure. I mean, you know, people in the ag, I feel like, you know, I'm a fourth generation farmer. You know, that means something in the ag community. But really what I want the consumer to know is that I'm doing this for the for the future of this industry. I mean, hopefully if my children wanted to become a farmer, um, they absolutely could 
could, you know, take over the farm, why would I do anything to jeopardize that? I wouldn't. I mean, I, I, want, I care about my land. I care about my animals. I care about my, the environment because I want to pass it on. Just like the average consumer wants, you know, the best environmentally friendly place for their kids to live. And the one thing I'd like to close on is kind of curiosity because I never thought about this this way. And, and you brought this up um, in our interview on smokeandmirrormovie.com. Uh, and, of course, you can see some of these clips and, and uh, follow what's going on with the documentary by going to smokeandmirrormovie.com. Um, the, we're talking about the kind of disagreement between um, suburban urban communities and farms and as if it's enemies, but in a matter of speaking, the, aren't farms kind of the one way that we stop urban sprawl and therefore effectively the, the, the loss of green space and trees that fight global warming? Yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that, it seems kind of obvious, but I actually, you, right, ne- you never yeah. really think about it in that context. You think about, we need to reserve uh, national forest or we need to do this or that, but it's kind of like, if you have a farm, you need space and therefore you probably have trees and a lot of green and therefore it might actually help keep the environment alive because last time I checked, plants tend to take in, you know, uh, carbon dioxide. And even if you're an animal farm, you still are preserving a lot more physical landscape than you would if you were building a subdivision. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm on the farm that's, that's in the documentary is uh, my farm in Lenore County. And uh, it's on about 80 acres. And part of my job as a farmer is not only managing the, the animals inside the barns, but managing that land and, you know, doing soil samples and, and, and taking tests and doing soil analysis. You know, that's part of being a good farmer is being, in, you know, doing your environmental duty. Marla Ivy, what is, if you had to leave one thought that people don't expect um, that we didn't cover in the documentary, if you had to think of one um, final parting idea that you want people to take away from uh, your interviews and your work, not only as a uh, as a hog farmer, but your advocacy with your foundation on behalf of the industry, we want you to plug that as well. What would that be? I think the most important thing that I would tell people to do is do your research and go see a farm. Connect with farmers. We're out here every single day. There's plenty on social media and I feel like that's where, you know, we're really moving as a society on gathering news. We're out here. We're educating. We're talking about it. Um, I don't have anything to hide. I hope that the consumer, before they read something, can, you know, take a second thought and take a second look and go make a decision for themselves. And if that's sort of what the foundation you've been working with has focused on. Can you tell us about what Feed sure. the Dialogue is? Absolutely. Um, Feed the Dialogue NC Foundation is a nonprofit um, that basically is, 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 does just that. We kind of bridge the gap between the consumer and the farmer. So we're here to kind of educate and help answer any questions that a consumer might have about where their food comes from. Um, you know, unfortunately, farmers have been too busy farming <laughs> for, the, for the past 40 years that we haven't. I mean, I blame us on this. We haven't been a good, doing a very good job educating and getting our ag story out there. So um, that's what the foundation is, is our, our biggest mission and just helping kind of bridge that gap and, and answering people's questions.
And of course, you can get that at feedthedialognc.com. That's Feed the Dialogue for North Carolina. Feedthedialognc.com. Find out more information about that. And Marla Ivey, we can't thank you for enough for joining us here on the podcast at Stateside Island Productions and SmokeAndMirrorMovie.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right.